Genesis 16 this morning. You'll find that on page 11 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there as we continue our study of the life of Abram. And I trust God will bless us even as we consider his word. So Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when, he, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can consider And we pray that you would help us to understand this uh, very peculiar and at times I think off-putting story. And yet it is a story in which you have recorded for us that we might consider it today. And I trust even in doing so as we think of the life of Abram and we see how you relate to what at many times is a sinful man. We gain a greater understanding of how you relate to us as sinful people. And so I, I trust this passage will help us to rejoice in the grace in which we have received through Jesus Christ. We pray for those here who have not received that grace and mercy, and even ask that today would be the day of their salvation, that they too might know of your love in Jesus. And so do a great and mighty work in our presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It was just before the Civil War when a wealthy farmer named Worthy Taylor hired a young farmhand named Jim to help around the farm during the summer. And so that summer, Jim cut the wood and milked the cows and, and do whatever farmhands do. And, and he, would, he slept there in the hayloft in the barn. And as these things tend to go, it's no surprise to us that Jim fell in love with the farmer's daughter. Well, the summer ended and Jim expressed his feelings to Worthy Taylor and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. At this, Worthy just laughed. He said, son, you have no money. You have no prospects. And there is no way in the world that you can provide for my daughter. Jim said, I can provide. I promise I will make good. Worthy Taylor, however, would not be persuaded. He turned the young men down, believing his daughter to be too good for Jim. Well, 35 years passed, and that summer, along with Jim the farmhand, was soon forgotten when Worthy Taylor went out to tear down that old barn. And he noticed the rafter above the hayloft where Jim passed those summer nights was engraved with his entire name, James A. Garfield who just so happened to be the President of the United States at that moment. You see, things don't always work out the way you think they will. Certainly things are not going the way Abraham thought they would have go, especially in light of what we studied last time in Genesis 15. You remember that nighttime walk with God where God invites the old man to go outside and to look at the stars, and he says, number the stars if you can, for as many stars as you see, so shall your descendants be. And we know in response to that, against all the evidence to the contrary, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed that he would be a father. He believed that, that his son would go on to create a great nation. That's what God told him in Genesis 15. So, so, so we might be surprised when we come to Genesis 16 and we read in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. There's no children for the 85-year-old man. I mean, God's been telling him for year after year, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son. Now for 10 years, been telling him, you're going to have a son. And he must have thought, this is not turning out how I thought it would. Doubt begins to creep in. Right? His belief begins to waver. And we shall see that the father of our faith begins to walk by sight once again. And it is stunning. This is a stunning passage because we think, no, not Abraham. Right? Not after that incredible experience with the Lord, that God himself, you know, appearing as fire and smoke. Remember walking through that path of slaughtered animals as this powerful and very vivid vow that God would sooner be cut to pieces than not keep his promises that he has given to Abraham. He saw that. He experienced that. And you think about what spiritual heights Abraham must have reached at that moment. Oh, surely he above all will be impervious to distrusting this God. And yet the man who reached the summit of God's presence, as we see soon after in Genesis 16, comes tumbling down into the valley of disbelief. A descent actually taken by many. Noah, David, Elijah, Ezekiel, Gideon, Peter, they all walked this sad, well-worn path. Men and women reaching the peak of their faith only shortly thereafter to fall down into disbelief. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Perhaps you too have had those mountaintop experiences where God just seems incredibly close to you, but then you have to go back into life, don't you, with all the stress and all the uncertainty, and you have to serve and trust and obey. It was about a month ago, I was picking my, my teenagers up from the Disciple Now weekend that they had, and we're driving home, and they're saying, Dad, we, we just didn't want it to end. Right? They said, Dad, we don't want the fire to go out in our souls now. God, Dad, we don't, we don't want to go back just to the mundane day after day of life. We want to just keep running after the Lord. And I get it, and I told them, I understand, but you can, as much as you want, live on the mountaintop. Right, Because there are people to serve, and there is work to do, and there are commands to obey, and there is a kingdom to build. And for my kids, there is a room to clean right, and, and school to do. You just can't live there. Often after these experiences, these great close encounters with God, it's when the challenges come into our life. It's why Paul would warn us, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Well, Abraham fell. And it's not the only time he falls, as you know. His faith is continually tested. We've already seen this just in our brief time studying his life. He's tested with famine. He's tested with wealth. He's tested with war. He's tested with pride. He's tested with fertility issues. And at times he passes gloriously, and other times he fails miserably. And here the test for him is waiting. Waiting. Waiting on God to keep his promises. Do you like waiting? I made a very foolish decision yesterday evening around 6 o'clock to go to the grocery store. Evidently, there is about five feet of snow coming this afternoon, and half of Percival joined me at the grocery store. And there I'm in line all the way down to the back of the store, waiting and waiting. Do you like grocery lines? Do you like crowded parking lots? Those are fun, aren't they? Do you like waiting? We order at a restaurant, and it's been 15 minutes, and we're thinking, where is my food? We're about to throw a little conniption, right? We're about to throw a little fit. Why isn't my food here now? We find waiting difficult, and it probably reveals something about us. You know, the Bible says that faith is tested in waiting on the promises of God. Your faith is tested through waiting. Isaiah 40, for instance, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Acts chapter 1. They are to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Titus 2, we wait for the blessed appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible says work. The Bible says watch. The Bible says pray. The Bible says look. And as we do all these things, we do them as we wait. Faith demands waiting. A lesson that Abram's going to learn the hard way. And so we watch in Genesis 16. Abraham here is uh, caught in a love triangle if you will. It's almost like young adult fiction, I think. All we need is a werewolf somewhere, and we're ready to go. We got a bestseller here, right? It's a big old mess. It's not pretty. There's anger. There's jealousy. There's pride. There's cruelty. There's enmity. It is a sad, sad story, and in it, we see something of our own sinfulness and something of God's greatness, as we see God is patient with sinners, What do we learn today from all this? This is what you learn. God is patient with you as you learn to trust him. And so we begin scene number one, a terrible test. It's all there recorded in verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. You see, the years have crept on, haven't they? As I mentioned, it's already 10 years now. And you wonder if their hopes would rise on a monthly basis, only then to collapse. How many times did Abram and Sarai pray together that they might have a kid this month, that maybe this would be the month the promise is fulfilled, only to have their hopes shattered? I mean, imagine trying to have a child for 10 years and nothing is happening. I mean, some of you may know that challenge. Some of you may have walked that path, right? If you're, maybe you're here and you're young and single, right? And you look forward to the day in which you'll be a, a daddy, you long for the day, and you fully expect that one day you're going to be a mommy. Well, Abram wants to be a daddy. Sarah wants to be a mommy. And despite God's promises, it's not happening. And you could almost imagine Sarai coming to Abram and saying, listen, are we just supposed to keep waiting and waiting and waiting? I mean, you're 86 years old, man, right? And I'm not much younger, right? It's a test, isn't it? Will faith endure the wait? One pastor put it this way, we live much of our life in faith's waiting room as our character is tried. You do understand, I think, if you live long enough following Christ, that God doesn't give us every blessing, that God withholds blessings from us, God delays blessings from us to test our faith in him, to test our love for him. Some people want children, some people want to be married, some people are hoping for financial security one day, and God will withhold some of those blessings, and those lack of blessings are a test of your faith in God. Do you trust God in the lack? Now, of course, God has blessed you, hasn't he, just as he blessed Sarah. I mean, think about all that Sarah has. She's married, right? She's, they're extremely wealthy, she has servants, I mean, everywhere. I wouldn't mind a servant or two. That sounds like a coming handy, right? Her, she knows God, I mean, and so things are going pretty well. But the one thing is missing, and the, what's missing is what she so earnestly wants is a child. In fact, the pain in which she must experience is pronounced in her culture. Because in this traditional culture, the woman's job pretty much was to build a family. That's how, what they understood. That's where your significance as a woman came from in this day. Not to say that's right, but that's what reality. And if you did not have kids in that day as a woman, you were a disgrace. And she's bearing that burden for years and years. And even worse for Sarah, I think, because how many times has God said, hey, I plan to bless the world through your children. The whole plan of redemption depends upon you all having kids, and I'm going to save the multitude through them. You're going to have a son. He's going to build a great family. And he's going to, God says, he's going to spread my fame throughout all the world, and all the families of the world are going to be blessed. In other words, what Sarah's thinking is not only am I failing my husband, I'm failing the entire world. It's all riding on me. And so this elderly woman looking into her husband's eyes on a daily basis with pain and her faith is tested. A test I think we all will face. For us it might be sickness. It might be unemployment. It might be broken relationships. Right? And we have a, there's a question before us when this happens. The question is, will I move ahead on my own? Will I take matters into my own hands and walk a path of disobedience despite the clear commands and the word of God? Or will I have, a reason, will I have trust that he has a reason for the delay and wait patiently? Now let me ask you a question. Does God have a reason to delay the son of the promise? Is there a reason he is keeping them from having a child? 
Well, yes, of course. In fact, God wants to teach, as we'll see later, that the redemption which he is going to bring about is entirely dependent upon his miraculous power of a God who calls, as Paul would say, things that are not into being. And so God wants to testify to them that, he is, he is, that, that salvation is totally dependent upon him. Moreover, he wants to preview the miraculous birth of the, sutra, uh, the, the actual son of promise. Right? I mean, these are things they could have never imagined why God was delaying. And of course, he wants to grow their faith, doesn't he? God grows their faith by testing them. Faith is, faith is how you live this Christian life. Faith is like a muscle, isn't it? And, and a muscle only grows when it's strained. When, when, when you, you put it in, in, in pressure in a difficult place and then it grows back stronger, God will strain us. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. I'm sure you have. You think, God, how is this going to work out? You ever think that? God, how is this going to work out? Right? God, God how am I going to provide? God, is my marriage always going to be like this? God, will I always be lonely? Right? God could have given them a child immediately. He could have said, okay, Abram, Sarah, I'm going to give you a child in nine months, so you know, go get to work, right? The baby's coming. He could have done that, and that would have been a cause of great rejoicing in their life, but not faith. Instead, they're waiting year after year, and he keeps promising, I'll give you a son, I'll give you a son, I'll give you a son. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And he wants them to cast themselves onto a faithful God when they don't understand. God, listen, my Christian brothers and sisters, God is committed to strengthening your faith. And he'll put you in difficult situations in order to do so. In fact, before God does something through you, God wants to do something in you. God wants to grow faith in you before he blesses others through you. And he may be doing that with you even now. This is the way... The Christian faith grows, right? You grow as a Christian. Your faith grows not simply by listening to sermons. You understand that? It's by walking a path of faith. When God takes you into the valleys and he, he shows you there that he will care for you even in the waiting room of life. One author says he sends you into the storms so he can show you his power. He surrounds you with conflict so that he can provide a table for you in the presence of of your enemies, asking all the while, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Abram and Sarai did not. I'm afraid they would not wait on God. Instead, Sarai comes to Abram with a sinful solution. Consider scene number two, a sinful solution. It's recorded there in verse two, isn't it? And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai is proposing that Abram take a, another wife, if you will. This is not her invention. This is not a scheme she came up with. This is a culturally accepted way of obtaining children. This would be a solution that her grandson, Jacob, would embrace to take a concubine, a second wife. We call this polygamy. Sadly, it's in the Bible. We see it a number of times in the Bible. And every time we see it, it's a total disaster without fail. There's never a time it works out well. Doesn't work out well, as you'll clearly see in this passage for Abram. Doesn't work out well for Jacob. How did it work for David? 
I mean, that was just a disaster of a family. What about David's son, Solomon? Did that work out well? No, I'm afraid it didn't work out well for him. Polygamy is devastating to women. It's terrible for children. It rips families apart. It never works. And I could almost guarantee it's on its way to America. I mean, I, I, I mean just write it down. Give it maybe 10 years from now. With this whole freedom of marriage and every, anything goes today. And you just get to do, follow your own heart. Well, it's not just a matter of time before it's here, before it's on the books. And it's passing the laws. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, we'll get A-OK to that. It's coming. And please understand, this sin of old will return. And it never works. It may be the custom here but you can, in fact, even hear behind her words, can't you, something of the pain she's feeling. Does she not say there in verse 2, the Lord has kept me from bearing children. Sarai is angry. Sarai is sad. And I would even say terribly unkind because you notice her proposed solution is not to sleep with my servant. Perhaps you, Abram, will get a child through her. That's not what she says. She says, sleep with my servant so I can get a child through her. In other words, Hagar, Sarah, Sarah is saying, Hagar's child will become my child. Hagar is my slave. She is my property, and her children will be my property too. I mean, this is awful. And you think, okay, what will Abram do at this time? Certainly he'll put a, you know, he'll calm this whole situation down. Certainly he'll, he'll, you know, he'll steer his wife correctly, Right? In fact, he should have done what his son would do in a very similar situation. You know, his son Isaac will also be promised a son. He'll also have a barren wife named Rebecca. And, and rather than walk the path of faithlessness his father does, you know what Isaac does? He prays. He goes to God and says, will you please give us a son? And you know, Genesis 25, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah conceived. That's what, if, that's what his daddy should have done. Abram should have done. He should have, uh, should have listened to God's promises. He should have gone to God and talked to him about his promises. Instead, what does he do? Look at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Right? He listened to his wife. And doing so, he's as culpable as his wife if not more so. In fact, you know, who's received the promises? It's been Abram every time. I know Sarah's, Sarah's been absent every time God shows up and he says to Abram, I'm going to give you a son. He's the one who heard God's instruction. right? He's the one who saw the fiery vision. But he didn't, doesn't seem to question her decision at all. He doesn't seek the Lord at all. He simply follows her lead into sin. Just like she, remember Genesis chapter 12? She, she, you know, Abram takes his wife and gives, gives her to an Egyptian pharaoh. And now, well, here we are in chapter 16, Sarah takes her husband and gives her to an Egyptian slave. In fact, it reminds me of another man, and perhaps it does to you as well. A man who was given the promises of God, but instead follows his wife's suggestion, taking what is forbidden to him, and thereby plunging his entire family into sin. I mean, it's the fall all over, isn't it? I mean, we're, this, is, this is just Adam and Eve once again. Just like in the garden, there were two trees. Now we have two women. One is given to you to enjoy. The other is forbidden, right? And just as Adam listened to the voice of his wife, so now we read in verse 2 that Abram listens to the voice of his wife. It's even more clear when we get to verse 3. As Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, so now we read Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband there in verse 3. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. 
as a wife. You see, Sarai's plan is just like Eve's. I don't trust God to do what he said. We're going to take things in our own hands. We're going to seek the blessings that God is withholding from us. And in doing so, Abram and Sarai treat this virgin Hagar like some unfeeling baby machine. It's unspeakably awful. You think this is what Hagar dreamed about as she was a little girl? One day I'm going to be thrust in some dirty old man's tent to do God knows what to me. And there she is, this enslaved woman, cast into this man's tent because they would not trust God. They would not wait on God. My friends, it's here that we learn once again the nature of sin. And its core, sin says, I don't trust you, God. I don't think what you have for me is good. I don't think your rules are good. I think you're withholding on me. And so I'm going to rule in your place. I'm going to do what I think is best, not what you think is best. That's sin. Adam did it. Abram did it. You do it. I do it. At least Abram waited 10 years. I don't even like waiting 10 minutes before I'm off doing my own thing and saying, God, I got a better plan. Right? You think about it this week, just this week. Have you doubted God's promises this week? You know Romans 8, 28, of course, don't you, my Christian brothers and sisters? For God works all things, all things, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good. Have you, did you live in light of that truth this week? Or did you doubt God's good control of your life? Were there times you fell into frustration? Were there times you found yourself sullen and angry? Pray that Hamilton Baptist Church will be a people marked by a patient trust in God's promises. And even when we fail, and we will fail, I'm thankful that there is one who never did fail, the one who always did trust the Father. I'm thankful for the real second Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet here we, here we are, aren't we, in the midst of sin, and I'm afraid we're just getting started because it's going to get a lot worse in a moment. I mean, imagine, if you will, that you and your wife, you can't have kids, and so one night in frustration she says to you, oh, why don't you just sleep with my maid? And you do, right? And she conceives. And consequences of that sin begin to compound as we see scene number three, compounding consequences. It begins with pride rising in Hagar's heart there in verse four. And when he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on contempt with her mistress. Right? Now, now Hagar's carrying the, the kind of the tribal chief's baby. Abraham's in charge of this whole crew. He's got his own army. And she's carrying his child's and she's, you know, things are moving on up for her, aren't they? And she's thinking, well, maybe, maybe I could edge out Sarai and take her place as the matriarch of this whole deal, right? And maybe, maybe she's, she's treating her, her, her uh, mistress in contempt. Maybe instead of eyes cast down now, now she looks at Sarai dr- d- straight in the eyes, right? Maybe she's off in the kitchen with Abram whispering in his ear, hey, honey, do you want to feel the baby kick, right? Hey, honey, will you rub my feet? My back hurts. Hey, Sarah, do you mind getting me some tea, right? And you can imagine how this is going, right? And you can imagine where there's Sarah in the middle of this. Listen, they're living in a tent out back. Husband, husband's wife, and husband's girlfriend all hanging out in a tent. That's a crowded tent, right? That is not going to go well. And finally, Sarah's, Sarah's had enough of it, and she erupts. 
You see her rage there in verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on contempt on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. That is what is called a marital discussion. I can almost guarantee, though, that this is taking place at 2 a.m. in the morning, right? This is when these things happen for some reason, right? And what she say? Abram, it's your fault. Now, I know better than to say that sounds a lot like a woman, so I won't say it, okay? okay? But it was her idea, wasn't it? I mean, it was, that was, she, it was her plan. She gave Hagar to him. And when I first read this, I just kind of rolled my eyes and said, come on, lady, give me a break. But then I took a step back. And maybe we should all, I want you to feel her pain. She said, I put my servant, what does it say, in your embrace. I looked it up. It literally, it's not, I don't know why it's not translated this way. I don't know Hebrew any better than you do, but I, I looked it up on my Bible program. And it's literally, I put my servant in your lap. It's graphic. Right? She, she says, this, I've been married to you for 60 years or whatever it is, and I, and I put another woman into, into your lap. I gave another woman to the man I love, and if that's not bad enough, I don't even know my place in this family anymore. I, I don't, am I still your wife? I, I, where, where do I belong? Because now it looks like Abram and, and Hagar, and I'm just out there not sure where, where I am or what, what to do. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know where I am. And so she she says to Abram, you're doing nothing. Do you understand you're not taking care of any of this? And so may, yeah, may God judge between you and me. Well, that ought to wake the old man up, right? Okay, let's let's nip this thing in the bud. I'm afraid not. You notice Abram's indifference there in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. You see, where he needs to assure Sarai of his love, where he needs to deal firmly with Hagar, where he needs to take responsibility and lead his home, what does he do? What does the great father of our faith do? She's your slave. You deal with her. That's not my job. Right? I put food on the table. I mean, I've been out all day walking camels or whatever the heck he does, right? I've been taking care of this. I put the tent over our head, and now it's my time to put my feet up and watch the game. That's not my problem. You're in charge of the household. You take care of it, he says to her. You work it out. This is the typical passive male role. No leadership, no protection, no cherishing no control over the home. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just sitting there on the couch with, drinking a beer with his finger up his nose and everything is just going crazy around him. He doesn't seem to care at all. Right? And so he says, what is he? And it, it's worse because he doesn't just say, hey, you deal with it. He tells her how to deal with it. And what does he say? She's your slave. Treat her like one. Right? She's under your power, he says. And so what does Sarah do? She does what her husband tells her to do. She treats her like a slave. I mean, read the end of verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, 
and she fled from her. Now, I don't think it's, a, it's, it's hard to imagine what deal harshly means, right? Right? This is, we're not talking about like a bad performance review. Okay? You, you know how a master deals harshly with slaves, right? In fact, dealt harshly, this same exact phrase is used to describe how the Egyptians treated the enslaved Jews when they didn't make bricks fast enough. In other words, before the enslaved Israelites were beaten by Egyptians, we have an enslaved Egyptian beaten by an Israelite. And if you think I'm taking this too far that Sarah actually beat her, that, well, whatever the mistreatment was, it was bad enough for a pregnant woman to flee into the desert without any resources at all in order to escape what was happening in that tent. It's awful. I mean, there's not a godly person in this group. I mean, Abram's uncaring and absolutely pathetic. Sarai is miserable and abusive. Hagar is proud and insubordinate. I mean, what's the moral of the story? You know, why is this even in the Bible? What is going on here? I mean, you read this and it almost seems like the Bible condones slavery, demeans women, sexual exploitation, cruel abuse, and these are not the bad guys, these are the heroes. Or are they? May I suggest to you once again that the Bible is not a book of heroes to emulate. It is not a book of virtuous people to follow it is a book of gospel. It is, in other words, it is a book of good news. And the news, as we see in this passage, is how God in his grace saves people who don't deserve it. And saves people who don't seek it. And saves people who don't appreciate it, even once they've been saved by it. That the best of humans are moral disasters, self-centered at their core, and God comes to love them and keeps coming to them and patiently works with them and continually rescues them. And that unlike all religions in this world, the Bible does not teach if you live righteously, God will bless you. Instead, it is the core truth that God offers mercy to sinners who would take it. Is it not clear here in this passage? The Bible is not about you and what you should do. It is about God and what he has done for us. The Bible is gospel. It is the good news of what God has done to save sinners like Hagar and Sarai and Abram and you. And you. And he's not done with them, is he? It's about time we get a hero in the story, right? We need someone to come to the rescue. And as he promised in Genesis 15, he's going to keep his covenant. God's not done with them. God's never done with you, Christian. You understand that? He comes to you in your failure. He comes to you in your sin. He comes to you in your sadness with unbelievable power and grace. As we talked about last time, when we are faithless, he is faithful. So we turn lastly to scene number four, a gracious gift. 
a gracious gift when the hero arrives there in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So notice that this is be very specific. This is not an angel of the Lord. Sometimes the Bible talks about that. This is the angel of the Lord. So the question then is, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, unlike other angels, this angel does interesting things, like verse 10. When the angel of the Lord said, I will surely multiply your offspring. That sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? And so when we see the angel of the Lord, most commentators will agree that most of the time, it is a theophany. That is, it is an appearance of God. It is a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ before he became a man. And so when the angel of the Lord, for instance, appears to Moses in the burning bush, Moses will conclude what? I have seen the Lord. When the angel of the Lord will, will wrestle with Jacob, Jacob concludes what? I have seen the Lord. When the angel of the Lord draws a sword before Joshua, Joshua concludes what? I have seen the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, as you'll see in verse 13, she shall conclude what? I have seen the Lord. You see, Jesus meets her on her way back to Egypt and a desert spring. Just like he'll do some thousands of years later when he comes to another foreign woman in sexual sin sitting at a spring. And I ask you, was either looking for Jesus? (laughs) No. Did either love Jesus? No. But he loved them. He was looking for them. And in both cases, there with this with Hagar, and in John 4 with the Samaritan woman, he offers restoration, he offers blessing, he intervenes with love and grace. In fact, like the Samaritan woman, you notice he begins by asking questions there in verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's interesting to me that often God will show up without, and it doesn't show up and start giving out truth declarations. He doesn't come with like a fire hose of proposition. He comes with questions. And I think this is, by the way, just as a footnote, a a wise pattern to follow when you are helping those people who are in distress. Instead of just hearing their stress and just coming at them with all the truth that you know, it might be good to ask questions and listen. And here he asked her too. Two questions there in verse 8, where are you from and where are you going? Now, it's not as if he doesn't know. He shows up and it says, hello, Sarai, servant, uh, uh, hello, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He knows who this is, but he's trying to get her to think about the decision in which he has made. By the way, the devil will never get you to think about these questions. The devil doesn't ask questions like this. Instead, the devil says you need to live for the moment. You need to live for what you're doing right now. Never mind where this sin will take you, the devil says. Never mind how far you've fallen. Isn't it fun? Aren't you enjoying it right now? And he's like, it's like the prodigal son. He'll never, he'll never tell you, don't you want to think about the father who you've left behind? He'll never say, don't you realize the sty into which you're headed? All he says is, let's live right now. Live for the fun right now. Forget about the relationships you're breaking. Forget about the trouble in which you're embracing. And yet God here comes with questions. He says, Hagar, where are you going? Going back to Egypt? And she was, sure is on the way. You a pregnant woman, you're going to walk hundreds of miles across the burning Egyptian sand without any resources or supplies. And even if you do make it, you a single mom with a biracial baby, homeless there in Egypt, poor with no one to protect, 
He comes, he says, I understand it's gone bad. But don't you see the Lord's blessing upon Abram? In fact, he tells her what she ought to do there in verse 9, doesn't he? The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, this is a hard thing to ask, isn't it? Go go back and submit to the woman who's beating me. And my hope, though I, I can't be sure, that if Hagar repents of her pride and is submissive as the Lord instructs, the mistreatment will end. Certainly he wants to bless her. You see that in verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, I'm going to make you a great nation. Right? I'll, I'll give you, God says to her, I'll give you what you, what you didn't even dare to dream. Right? I, I'm going to just so richly bless you. A nation's going to come from you. But the path of blessing is back with my man Abram. And, and, she, and she will return, and it seems like things will go well for a while. Ishmael will grow up, and he seems to be well-treated for a while, until Sarah, Sarah gets jealous again, and Hagar and her son leave again, and the Lord will intervene again, and this time set them free for good. But she doesn't know any of this. She just hears the Lord say, I need you to do something very, very difficult. I need you to go back. And she has to trust him. Now, please understand, this is not a commentary on abusive relationships. And if you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get help. You need to tell someone. That is not the point of application. The point is that God sometimes calls us into difficulty. He sometimes calls us to persevere through painful relationships, even when they're full of trouble and trial, because if we do in obedience, God will bring us one day into greater blessing if we obey him. We can't see how, we can't see why, and so what do we do? We walk by faith. We believe that the trouble and pain that we face, if it's in obedience to God, is a pathway to his blessing, and perhaps even greater than you imagine to ask. Of course, we can't see that, so you have to trust him. In fact, we have the cross to lean upon to see God is trustworthy. Hagar didn't have the cross, but she had this wonderful promise recorded in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. There's incredible promise there in verse 11. God looks at her, Jesus looks at her and says, it's a boy. He tells her what she has. Notice, by the way, Jesus does not say, well, that's a mass of cells in your belly. That's a baby. In fact, I've already named him. His name is Ishmael, which means God hears in fact, you notice what he says. Why is he named Ishmael? End of verse 11. Because the Lord has heard. The Lord has listened to your affliction. And so I came. Right? That, that the Lord God is, every time she calls Ishmael, right? Ishmael, Ishmael, she, you will be reminded that I heard you in your distress. I came to your rescue. And I didn't come because you were godly, Hagar. I didn't come because you're righteous. I didn't even come when you asked me to come. I came because you were in trouble. And you were in distress. And the distress of God's creatures, the distress of his image bearers, impacts the very heart of God. 
says, I came. I wanted you to remember that. I came to your rescue. And he goes on to describe what Ishmael will be like in verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. Right? He's going to be a wild donkey. This is a boy with an energetic streak. Right? He is going to be A-D-D-D-D-D-D. Right? Just kind of wild. This is going to be a lot of work. This boy's going to be a lot of work. Right? Job 35 describes the wild donkey as both untamable and free. And you wonder if Hagar's chafing under her bondage. Ishmael will be free. But his hand is going to be against everyone. He says he's going to be hostile with his brothers. And I don't think you need to be a psychologist to understand, see this coming. Because you know what he's going to hear all his life? You're not the favored son. You're not the promised son. Your mama's a slave. You were a mistake. And once Isaac comes along, the whole camp's attention turns to him, leaving him off the side. And so this boy is going to have a tough upbringing. He's going to be a tough boy. He's going to have a tough life. In other words, despite God's forgiveness, there are consequences to sin, aren't they? God gives grace, but doesn't mean sin is undone. And the consequences, by the way, didn't end with them. They continue. The hostility between Ishmael and his kin didn't end with Ishmael and his kin. It continues on with their descendants. Ishmael will settle in Arabia, and as God promised, he would be the father of a great nation, the father of the Arabs. You see that in Genesis 25. His brother Isaac would give rise to the Jews. Now, how do the Arabs and the Jews get along? I mean, we are 4,000 years into this thing, and we're no better than day one. I mean, they are still at each other's neck. In fact, the first Muslims were Arabs. Muhammad was an Arab, a descendant of Ishmael. So my question for you, Christian, is how should we treat Arabs? How should we treat Muslims? How do we treat them? Scowls? Snide comments? Crude jokes? In our heart, thinking, why don't you take that thing off your head? How do we treat Arabs? The same way God treated the mother of the Arab nation. Kindness, love, mercy, patience. You know why? Because Arabs need Jesus too. And some believe in Jesus, like our brother Ayman, who is a missionary here to Arabs. Some will believe in Jesus. You could read Isaiah 60 this afternoon and see that the Arab people will adorn God's temple one day. In other words, there will be Arabs in, uh, in God's eternal kingdom. And by the way, not to be crude, if Abram could just keep his pants on, we would never have had Islam. Right? So listen, you can't look at Islam and say, you're ruining the entire world. Because we wouldn't have Islam if the father of our faith hadn't sinned. Okay? Now I better move on before I want to have a job tomorrow. So we're just going to, right? Okay? Let's read carefully. Let's see what God, how does God treat people? Hagar's response is surprising because she doesn't rejoice in the blessings of God, but she instead rejoices 
in God. Look what she says in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, verse 14, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barrett, right? So uh, I'm just going to deal with the obvious here. First, she calls the well beer. It's not that kind of beer, okay? So don't make your vacation plans to the beer well, some of you guys out there. What it simply means is that God sees me. Beer Lahoy Roy is God sees me. That's what she calls. In fact, she calls him the God of seeing. And you see that in verse 13? You are the God of seeing, meaning Hagar is the only person in all the Bible that gives God a name. Every time God shows up, he says, this is my name, this is my name, this is my name. There's one time in the Bible, it's here in Genesis 16, where one individual has the audacity to actually name him, and it's Hagar, and she says, you are El Roy, you are the God of seeing. Because she thought she was alone in the world, and she says, God sees me. God sees me, I'm not alone. And she rejoices and, and calls him El Roy, the God of seeing. In fact, she explains why. You see that there in verse 13. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. She's in awe. She says, this is incredible. I'm talking to God. I'm talking to the creator of all things. I'm a fugitive slave woman. I, I'm a single pregnant mom, and God has come to me. In fact, you notice that little footnote at the end of verse 13 shows you that this is a difficult phrase to translate. And you look down there, my foot, mine's footnote 6, I'm going to read it to you because I love this. It could be translated this way, have I really seen him who sees me? Right? She says, is this true? Is this actually happening? She's marveling, isn't she? How is this possible? She's saying, how can it be that I have seen God? That changes everything. When you see God, it transforms your life. I've seen the all-seeing God, and he has welcomed me. He has blessed me. He has loved me. And now she goes home. You think she's afraid of Sarai? And she says, I've been with God. Sarai's never been with God. I've been with God. And so she goes back. She believes God and goes home. And I hope a different woman as you see in verse 15, the story ends. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. If she's amazed that God has seen her, my Christian brothers and sisters, how much more shall we be amazed that he has seen us? In fact, he hasn't just noticed us. He has died for us. How much more should we therefore be able to face anything? I mean, God's died for you. He put his son on the cross for you. And so he may call you into difficulty, but he calls you with that foundation to stand upon. My God loves me so much, so committed to me, that he would actually shed his blood for me, even when I sin. And there's sin all over this page. It runs red with sin. I mean, it's a catalog of sin. you got adultery, abuse, pride, lust, Apathy, impatience, broken relationships, hopelessness, fleeing for your life. I mean, it's all there, and Jesus shows up. He says, let me fix it. That's what he does. He fixes it. And some of you, I mean, some of you are running from God. 
Some of you, some of you left this week, some of you have been running for years and years and years, and your life is full of sin and trouble and brokenness. Where are you going? Where's that taking you? And what have you left? What, what, what have you left behind? We, we, we are so foolish at times and run off into sin. And my hope and my prayer throughout this week is that God would come and meet with someone here today and he would say to your heart, where are you going? Won't you come back to me? Won't you return? You see, nothing's hidden from God. He is the God who sees and he would bless you just like he blessed Hagar if you would trust in him. Christ comes to the Hagars in the wilderness. He also, by the way, comes to the miserable Abrams and Sarai in the camp, and he gives grace. In fact, you know there's another time in which the Bible shows, uh, sh- tells us of an angel who shows up uninvited to a poor, unmarried woman. And the angel actually says to her, just like here, you're going to have a son. And then he names the son. And then he tells of the son's future. And the angel says to this woman about her son that one day he too will be multiplied. And that one day he too will be the father of a great nation that would extend all over the world. And that he too would be hated by his brothers. And that he too would have everyone's hand against him. You see, the promise is very similar to what we see in the Lord Jesus. Except there's one difference, isn't there? Ishmael will be a wild donkey fighting for his rights. The Lord Jesus instead will be a meek lamb giving up his rights, giving up his life, so that through his sacrifice, sinners like Abram and Sarah and Hagar and me and you might be saved. If you trust him. Do you trust him? One day, every one of us is going to stand before God. What are you going to say to him? Are you going to say, God, I, I understood that when I, when I recognized the depth of my sin, I was broken, and I bowed my knee in faith to Jesus, and I said, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my God. Will you... Cover me in mercy. Or, you're going to say, yeah, I heard all about it. All my life. But I never really thought it had much to do with me. I just did my own thing. What will you say? My hope and prayer is that everyone here in this room would say, I trusted Jesus. Our Father, we are thankful for the grace that covers us. As awful as this story is, we are no better. And so we're thankful that we don't have to be good and perfect in order for you to receive us. We just simply need to be forgiven. We're thankful for grace. I pray that those who have yet to receive the grace of God would do so today in faith, knowing that you're Scripture says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And Father, I pray for all my Christian brothers and sisters. Many here, I trust, are in the midst of pain and uncertainty. 
and difficulty. And they're there because they obey you. And maybe they'd rather be somewhere else, but your word very clearly says this is where you're to be. Will you help them to trust you? That you have them in your hands. You have the future already determined if they would just keep the course of following after you, that you might bless them. Help us to be people of faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.